Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning and welcome. Happy Valentine's Day. This is your host, Brad Perlin, Vermont Viewpoint, here at WDEV and snowy Waterbury, Vermont. Snowy Vermont and cold out there. Uh, great show this morning. We're going to be talking uh, right away with Representative Scott Beck. He's going to be talking about a new education bill uh, that he's his committee is reporting out or he's reporting out on. Uh, later in the show, Dr. Dean uh, Barcelo is in, in optometry, and there's a bill, S-233, that uh, expands the scope of work of uh, optometry here in Vermont, uh, and he will talk about that bill and what it means for, for all of us. And then at 1015, uh, Gregory Tetro and Greg Tetro and Gary DeCarlis are joining us from Jenna's Promise, and Gary is the Executive Director of Vermont Recovery Network. And we'll hear about uh, the five-year anniversary of the loss of Jenna, but also hope that uh, the, the Jenna's Promise organization is bringing to the world. And also, Gary will talk about some of the legislative initiatives that's helping in recovery. Uh, so I want to go right to the phone line with... Representative Scott Beck, uh, welcome and happy Valentine's Day. Good to be on, Brad. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too. Yeah, thank you. And um, thanks for ducking out of committee. I know it's very busy there, and I uh, appreciate you joining me this morning. Uh, are Do legislators exchange Valentines? Are there 180 little boxes and uh, you share? Well, it, it, it probably doesn't look like what you remember in your second grade classroom, but um, like I brought in um, Hershey Kisses this morning and put them on all my uh, fellow committee people's desks and uh, little things like that. Well, that's uh, that's a, it sounds great. Um, so we want to I want to jump right in. Um, you're representative from Caledonia Three, St. Johnsbury area, but have been on education committee for for a number of years, and this looks like a pretty big and unusual bill uh, in uh, H850. Can, can you tell us a little bit about it? And- sure. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Caledonia Essex now with the, um, the changes that occurred, and, um, and I'm on House Ways and Means. I was on education, but I'm on Ways and Means now. Um, but, yeah, 850 um, basically does, I would say, three things. Uh, one, it removes um, the 5% cap that was part of Act 127, uh, which is, I think your listening audience is probably pretty familiar with that because there's been a lot of conversation about it. But um, House Bill 850 would eliminate that cap. Um, two, it, uh, instead of the 5% cap, it sets up a system whereby if a district was disadvantaged by the weighting changes, then they get a discount on their tax rate in FY25, and then that um, discount would um, phase out over five years. The discount is um, they would get a one-cent rate discount on their, um, on their local tax rate for every uh, percent that they were damaged. 
and that that scent is off of the pre-CLA rate. And then the third thing that it does is it if a district decided that at this point, and they don't have to, this is completely optional, that if they wanted to um, pull back their warrant budget and not offer it to voters and instead warrant a different budget, um, as long as they conduct that vote prior to April 15th, the state would cover any additional expenses that are incurred to make that vote happen. And those are basically the three pieces of the bill. Are you getting any sense that uh, school boards are, you know, if this gets enacted, are are they going to take advantage of this and go back to the table? We don't know. Um, I think it will be all over the map. I think some districts will decide to pull their budget and rewarn. I think some districts will say, well, let's just, Let's just see what happens at town meeting, and we'll go from there. Um, and then I think there are probably about a dozen districts that, because of where they vote on the calendar, they have not warned yet. So they will be able to warn with all of this information. But we, you know, we are only, what are we, um, we're 20 days away from town meeting. So some districts might just say, yeah, let's just, let's just see what happens at town meeting, and that would be a perfectly logical, legitimate choice. Um, others may decide to do something different based on the, the unique circumstances of their community. But we really don't have a sense of um, exactly how the school districts will react to this. And when you say uh, damaged or disadvantaged by the waiting system, can you help us with that? Yeah, so what um, what AOE did is they looked at the, the previous um, waiting system, and they they determined what percent of the total state's weighted population that a district had, okay? And then they did that same calculation using the same year, FY25. They did that same calculation with the new weight to see what percentage of the weighted population they had using the new weight. And if that percentage decreased, then that is that indicates that there's a disadvantaged district there that has lost capacity because of the waiting change. And these these school budgets, this really has nothing to do with um, capital money at all, uh, or does it? I'd... Oh, well, it might. No, capital money, capital construction projects in school districts um, are in budgets, and in some cases they may be part of their education spending. Of course, education spending is what is – what, um, uh, that's where tax rates come from. So, no, if, if um, capital construction is definitely at the local level, they make those decisions about um, what they're going to do and then um, how they're going to pay for it. Okay. We are talking with Representative Scott Beck on Education Bill H850, uh, which is allowing communities to uh, rethink if they're going to uh, put their school budgets out um, in this in 20 days at the March 5th election. If you want to join this conversation, you've got questions for Representative Beck, give us a call, 802-244-1777. Uh, so the uh, absentee ballot requests have been going out in communities, I believe, they or they're just starting this week. Um, what does that mean for a school budget ballot that, that goes out? And then uh, how, how do, what does the voter do with that if, if they don't even know if it's going to be valid or not? 
Well, if a, a voter gets a ballot, um, they should vote. Um, and then um, whether that whether that ballot item, that particular ballot item, um, gets counted, that's a local decision. If the school district says, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna see what happens in town meeting day," then um, that that uh, ballot would abs- that ballot item would absolutely be counted. But if the school district says, "You know what? Nope, we're gonna pull that ballot item and we're gonna submit a different one for a different date," then that ballot would come in, and that um, um, that ballot item, while it would be counted because of the tabulator. It wouldn't be reported, and it wouldn't mean anything. Okay. So where is the bill right now? When when will the world know that, that this is going to happen? Uh, my expectation is on the notice calendar in the House today. My expectation is, is that it's going to be pulled up off the notice calendar um, this afternoon. I'll report the bill, and then um, it will likely be put in all stages of passage if the body's amenable to that, and then the Senate would have it tomorrow. So you report out the bill from, from your committee. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. That's correct. I'll report the bill to the body on behalf of the House Ways and Means Committee. And is this a considered a money bill? Is that why it's Ways and Means? Does Education Committee look at this as well? or The Education Committee has been a part of this um, conversation, um, but ultimately, this is a, a bill that's about tax rates. And so um, because it's a bill about tax rates, the House Ways and Means takes the lead on it. Okay. Um, so the uh, how, do, how do all the clerks, and I don't even know the mechanics of how everybody sort of finds out the results. I mean, they, obviously, it'll, this will be widely reported, but is there a yeah. mechanism for this as well? Yeah, well, fortunately, we have a lot of really, you know, organizations in the state of Vermont that are very good at communicating. Vermont League of Cities and Towns, the town clerks have their own organization. You know, you have Vermont superintendents, school boards, uh, principals. So as this bill has moved along, and, and con- I mean, they are in constant contact with their their people. That I think they probably, the clerks know that there is, you know, some rumblings over here and, uh, if, you know, when that uh, bill is uh, finalized, that um, I'm sure the town clerks will, uh, their, their association will communicate with the town clerks and the VLCP will communicate with the towns and, you know, the superintendents and the school superintendents and school boards associations will communicate with their people. The word gets out very quickly. Um, in fact, it's sometimes within minutes of these decisions being made. Yeah, that's remarkable. I, well, I haven't met. I imagine all eyes are on Montpelier on this because it's a pretty big deal. We are talking with the representative Scott Beck about a uh, education bill H850. Uh, representative Beck is in Ways and Means, and this bill is moving along. It sounds like uh, Representative Beck, what what are the advantages to a community to take advantage of this bill uh, that you see? Um. Well, I, if you're talking about the um, the part about the ability to pull a ballot and then rewarn it, um, I think that just gives them another tool in the toolbox to um, to try to get to a point with their voters that that they agree on a, a dollar amount. Um, as far as the um, other pieces of the bill, um, I think the advantages are is that by at least 
right now that um, the Joint Fiscal Office believes that education spending is going to increase by $243 million in FY25. Um, $70 million is more typical. Of course, somebody has to pay for that hundred and you know that extra hundred and seventy three million dollars, and that's tax property taxpayers. So um, it, it's widely believed, and I think true, that this five percent cap has encouraged a lot of spending that would not have otherwise taken place. And if we can get that two forty three number to come down, then um, that will that will force um, that will there'll be lower tax property tax rates for Vermonters. The other benefit I think of it, which is I think a very um, real one, is that with the cap in place, um, we were setting up a situation for school boards where that, um, you know, they're spending $4 million over the cap and their voters did not approve that budget, then they would, in that situation, the district would have to cut you know, millions of dollars, um, probably, you know, dollar for dollar over the cap out of the budget before any tax relief was gained. And we thought that was a really uh, no man land, no man's land type of situation to put a school board in. Um, I know, you know, um, for example, Stowe, they were spending $4 million over the cap. If the Stowe voters had disapproved that budget, the only way that the Stowe School Board could get any type of tax relief would be to cut $4 million right off the top. And um, we thought that was just not a good situation for school boards. Uh, are there uh, disadvantages to uh, communities who just sort of go forward with the budget that maybe it's just too overwhelming? or, or uh... Well, I mean, it, it, it depends on the budget. Um, you know, but when spending is reduced, tax rates go down for the yield inflates and tax rates go down for everybody. Um, I would say in general, you know, which districts would be, would welcome this bill and which districts might not welcome this bill. It all depends on how aggressive the school district was about spending over the cap. I okay. Yep. If the school district was very conservative and they didn't add any extra expenses and they did everything they could to, from going over the cap, this will, this will help that district. But if, if a district was very aggressive about spending over the cap, um, then this district will, this bill would force them to make some different decisions, I think. Which sounds like the, the redo is, is an advantage to all taxpayers. You're giving them that opportunity. Yeah. And, and it's just an option. You know, it's just an option. Um, school boards do not have to take advantage of it. So there are hundreds and hundreds of bills uh, each session in Montpelier. Did this come about in an unusual way, H850, at, at the 11th hour, or was there contemplation oh, and about I mean, it? It's, yeah, 850 is a committee bill, so it, it was generated by the committee. Um, but the committee bill is a very common use practice. Um, so this is not really, this process is not an unusual legislative process. So they, it, it, they started identifying what looked like a problem with budgets. You're right. talking about a $243 million increase. That gets the attention of everybody. 
It does, uh, because it shows up in property tax rates. Yeah. So if in the perfect world, do you, do you anticipate you're going to see that 243 drop? Is it, does it look like this is a really good incentive for communities and? Yeah, I think, I think we will. I think that, um, you know, it, it will come down. I mean, it was 205 in December and then it ballooned. Um, how much it will come down? You know, I don't know. I mean, I hear some people say they think it's 50, it'll come down $50 million. Um, could be more, it could be less. Um, but every amount that it comes down will lower the property tax rates for all Vermonters. Well, all Vermonters will appreciate that for sure. Representative Beck, uh, are there other things, uh, in Montpelier? We, we've got, you know, a couple minutes more. Anything else that's sort of percolating of interest to you? Um, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think the, the greater budget, I think that's, uh, you know, an interesting conversation. How do we, in, in the same inflationary environment that school districts find themselves in, how do we, um, grow the general fund at only 3.5%? Um, I think greater greater education reform has always been an interest of mine. Um, this is what we're doing in 850 is um, it's, it's it's solving the problem in FY25. But if we don't do anything to reform the greater education fund, we're going to have very similar problems in FY26. So I think we really need to uh, buckle down and reform the entire education funding system before we leave in May. I think that would be a very um, I think that would be a good thing for Vermonters if we do that. Um, so those are the big ticket items that I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, well, we appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, often we, we hear about, um, how everything is going up, but it sounds like there's a sincere effort to bring, uh, taxes and spending down. So, um, yeah. it, is that something that though that education committee, would be looking at not necessarily your your ways and means committee on on um, changing it's, it's school a joint effort. Okay, it's a joint effort. Um, you know the ways and means we we focus more on education funding and health education. They focus more on education delivery and outcomes. But but there is a, a nexus there. You know we want to we want to get the very best outcomes we can, but we want to get them for the best price possible. Um, so so we do work a lot together. Yeah. And uh, listeners, uh, one of Representative Beck's hats is he's an educator, right? Yeah. I am. Uh, so what um, is – you know, we went through COVID, uh, a lot of remote legislation. Are, are you, are you sort of back to the, the normal as you know it in, in Montpelier? Yeah, we are. Uh, we were last year really for the most part, but it's, it's, it's back to normal. Um, you know, I think people are still, you know, careful if they're not feeling well, they might wear a mask or, you know, I, I definitely wash my hands more now than I did before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's pretty much back to normal. And uh, you also have a retail hat. Are Valentine books going out today in mass to loved ones? Uh, I think so. Uh, my wife, my wife tells me that we've um, we've been having some pretty good days lately at the store. I haven't been in the store for a while. I'm pretty busy over here, but yeah, I think Valentine's Day's been good. 
Yeah, I talked to a, a florist yesterday, and she said it was remarkable how Valentine's Day is every February 14th, but people don't seem to remember that until the night before or the day of or something. I remembered it the day ahead this year, which is pretty good for me. Good for you with all with all the things you're doing. So, Representative Beck, I really appreciate your time. I know you need to get back to committee. Um, thanks for the update on H850. We'll, uh, we'll be watching carefully, and uh, hopefully this helps in the whole tax base world. All right. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, this is Brad Furlan. It's Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in Waterbury. We're going to be talking uh, in the next segment with Dr. Dean Barcelo. He is a uh, optometrist, and there is a bill in the Senate, uh, at least in the in one of the committees, S two thirty three, which would uh, expand the the scope of work for um, optometry here in Vermont. And uh, Dr. Barcelo will explain what the bill is and and why it's important uh, to Vermonters. And then at 10.15, we'll be talking with uh, three guests, I believe, Gregory Tatro, his dad, Greg Tatro, and Gary DeCarlis, who's executive director of Vermont Recovery Network. They're going to be talking about uh, Jenna, who, who uh, we lost five years ago to opiates, but remarkable story of how they turned tragedy into hope and on valentine's day we're going to talk a little a bit about that hope and what they're doing and also gary will talk about things that are going on in the legislature that are important about recovery in vermont a big topic uh for every everybody in vermont this is brad furlan it's vermont viewpoint wdev in waterbury vermont Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint here in Waterbury, Vermont at WDEV. Uh, cold morning and driving was a little slow. I was behind a, a snowplow on the right and a slow car on the left and we weren't exactly speeding down the highway, but I did make it to Waterbury. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there. Hope you're having a good, uh, romantic day. And, uh, you know, there's also those who don't have, uh, Valentine partners. I hope you're taking care of yourself, finding a good treat, something you love to eat or whatever that, uh, makes you happy. Uh, everybody matters on this. My next guest I'm excited about, Dr. Dean Barcelo is an optometrist here in Vermont and there is a bill in Montpelier that I believe is in committee right now, S-233. I want to welcome you to the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you are from, you're a Vermonter, uh, Royalton native, and uh, eye care is kind of in your blood, it seems. Yeah, that's true. My grandfather... Um Started in South Royalton in the 1950s. And my dad graduated and uh, came back home um, and started in, I think, 82. And I did the same. And were they, uh, was it sort of always predestined you were going to go? Was that sort of your, your goal as a kid? or 
to be completely honest, I thought my father's job was really boring. Uh huh. You know, when you're a kid and you go in to get an eye exam, what your dad does is puts you in a chair, shines bright lights at you, and yells at you to be still. And none of that seemed fun or exciting to me. It wasn't until I was a uh, it was late high school, I guess. I was working down in West Lebanon pushing carts, and my dad said, hey, I've got two staff members that want to be out at the same time. Take two weeks off. I want you to come in and um, tech for me. And so I did. And that's when I kind of realized that his job wasn't as bad as I thought. Interesting. That was probably where I started. Yeah. Know. So that tech for him meant that you would actually bring um, clients. Yeah, work or, the patients yeah, up, yeah, right? Yeah. Work the patients up. Uh, collect special testing, have them read off the board, figure out kind of what the agenda was for the day, what's yeah. bothering you, any problems that you're having. Um, sometimes that meant taking pictures or images. Um, and are you in the same market area as your grandfather and father? I am. Yeah. yeah. I see people all the time who come in who say, I used to see your grandfather, I used to see your dad. I guess we didn't mention my sister's an optometrist too, so I usually tell them, well, you got to see my sister now, and then you'll have seen four. Yeah, and is your sister involved in your practice? Or yeah, she, she is. is. So yeah. I work. I work with my father and my sister. My dad's kind of taken a step back at this point, but me and me and my sister kind of carry on. We have um, a couple of the doctors in the practice, and one of them who started as a tech actually and turned in his notice, went to optometry school, and came back. Yeah, and. Uh well, that's quite amazing, and the generational thing is, is quite amazing too. Uh, and you've had you have a lot of uh, sort of side hobbies as well here in Vermont. Uh, what are some of the things that you like to do? Well, here in Vermont, I don't know. We're gearing up to put some taps and some trees, and uh, we're spending a lot of time with my kids. They're doing the school ski runners kind of program. So I've been uh, over at Woodstock at. Saskadena Six now, um, teaching kids to snowboard. Uh huh. And are you sitting your uh, your kids in a chair and shining lights in their eyes? And you know, funny you'd ask that. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I had um, I had the local school fourth and fifth graders. Uh, my son is in fourth grade. Come for a field trip, and I told them this exact story. But yeah, I mean, sat them all in and. Show them bright lights, and bright lights in their eyes and got them acquainted with what it was like to have an eye exam. That's awesome. Maybe fourth generation. Who knows? Maybe. I, I don't want to hold my kids to that just to be careful. But if they had interest, I would be a proud papa. Yeah. Um, so does it get uh, frustrating for an optometrist to when when you're going – is this clearer or is this clearer? This clearer? Because I, I sit there and I ponder and I do my best, but how does that work? Um, I plead the fifth. Okay. <laughs> uh, it depends. A lot of times when we're going through that, we're kind of bracketing down. We know the direction you're going anyway. We're yeah. just trying to decide between two very close options. Yeah, yeah. And the results are always good, and I know that. Um so you did a lot of training to get to where you are today um, professionally. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I I took a, um, a pre-med track in undergrad, and when I finished that, I went to graduate school. So I did undergrad in Nebraska, a little different from Vermont, very flat. Um, went to Philadelphia for my graduate school training. 
went to uh, optometry school there, learned to do eye exams, examine the eye, deal with eye disease, treat eye disease, did um, a lot of my rotations either in Pennsylvania or in Vermont because I knew I was coming home, Uh, did a residency in the White River Junction VA Hospital. It was close, and it's the one I wanted, so that's where I went. Um, And then uh, came home and joined practice with Dad. Um, I've taught students um, ever since, so I'm adjunct faculty at two schools, the New England College of Optometry, and it's called Salis University now. They changed the name, but where I went undergrad or for graduate school, Pennsylvania College of Optometry. And we think of optometry as uh, going in and getting your eyesight improved. That, but there's a, there's a real component of of health check and wellness to it as as well, right? There's a huge part of that. Yeah, um, that might be the one thing that frustrates optometrists more than better one or better two is the fact that people don't attribute the eye health portion. I'm here to get my glasses. I'm here to get my contacts. And to be honest, I think most eye doctors, that's like the most uninteresting portion of your eye exam. So there's... um, there's a number of things that show up um, along the way for eye exams. You know, I think uh, public health has done a good job at educating people about diabetes or blood pressure problems. We certainly see those. There's some neurology that shows up in the back of the eye. Remember that um, cranial nerve 2 is the optic nerve, so we're looking at that. Cranial nerve um, 3, 4, and 6 control how the eye muscles move. There's some other nerves in and around the eye and in and around the anexia, the, um, the the tissue around the eye that, that matter too. So you get a little neurology, you get a little systemic health that, that we're looking at and checking. You know, a lot of times when we see things that concern us, we're ordering testing, we're referring back to a specialist or primary care. Yeah. And, and with that, you're also, you are seeing change because you like, you've got your grandfather, your father and you, you've got all these records. So you have somebody like me who comes in a little bit older and you may see something that you may pick up something early for me, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, you shared with me who your optometrist is right before we started, and he's one of my favorite. And I think you've got a really good one. Um, but you know, he he would take a peek and he would pick up anything that that um, came early. Yeah, he when we get into the room with with the technician with him, he is using a language that is so foreign to me <laughs> about what he's seeing in my eyes. It's almost like, oh my goodness! <laughs> but that professionalism is just amazing, and I, I really appreciate my optometrist. So, what is what is the regulation process? Um, does Vermont have to regulate your industry? Sure, yeah, to to kind of lay it out, the the Office of Professional Regulation in the state of Vermont licenses almost all of the professional regulations. So pharmacy, dentistry, optometry, um, if you have a, a healthcare professional that you see who is outside the Board of Health, the Office of Professional Regulation regulates that. And that's under the Secretary of State's office. Okay. So there, um, the Vermont Optometric Association, which you, there's a hundred of you or so, uh, in, in Vermont, I, I'm thinking, um, you've been working to update the scope of 
optometry practice. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, about five years ago, we started working with the Office of Professional Regulation to we kind of went to them and said, look, there's three general areas of practice that um, optometry is educating their new graduates with, and we'd like to see those be included in what we can do. So these are in-office procedures, and they're generally in three buckets. So the first is injections. Um, We uh, sometimes will inject uh, medication um, into the anexia of the eye. We're not asking to put anything into the eye, but there are times where you might use a steroid, uh, maybe in a sty, or you would inject a medication to treat glaucoma um, superficially. Um, the second is removing what we call lumps and bumps, but non-cancerous lesions, think a skin tag, something like that. And the third would be um, some limited laser surgery. So when people think of laser surgery, they tend to think of um, like LASIK. We're not asking for LASIK. We're looking to um, use some lasers to lower eye pressure and diseases like glaucoma and a laser to remove a film um, that uh, often occurs after cataract surgery. People kind of looking through a hazy film and just zap it. I can see you here, but I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had cataract surgery years ago and we're sort of watching this, this film. Yep. Um, and it would be, for me anyway, I, I would love to be able to do that, you know, right in the office with my optometrist. Um, so these are skill sets that you have, but aren't able to utilize. Right. So, um, if you back up a little bit, the way medicine works is if, if you went to school, to medical school, to be an MD, you would graduate with a four-year degree. And in theory, your degree would allow you to do anything within medicine. And that's kind of why we have board certification. You'd like to know that the guy doing elbow surgery has done elbow surgery before or, or something along those lines. For, for organ-specific care providers, which optometry is one, dentistry would be one, um, you have four years that's really focused very specifically on one organ. And so we have the, the education and training to, to tackle eye-specific or things around the eye, um, including these things in these buckets. And um, I'd also like to point out that we're making most of the decisions about when these happen, and we're managing any post-operative complications that come along with them if, you know, if the patient's sent back. So your optometrist is going to evaluate you already and make the determination about whether you need that laser on that film on the back of your implant. And they're also going to look at you after the surgery and make sure that you don't have any post-operative inflammation, that things look good. Right. So soup to nuts on that. Yeah. Really, the, the part that we're not doing for these in-office procedures are, are, are doing the procedure itself. Yeah. So S233 has these three components to allow you to do skill sets that you you have but aren't able to utilize right now. Yeah, and some of these, I mean, um, my training was um, for residency was in the White River VA. And the way the rules work for federal 
um, property is you can practice to the highest level of licensure you have. And so in the VA, for example, we did do injections right there, and, and we would um, we would remove skin lesions, for example, that, that were benign and non-cancerous. Mm-hmm. It, um, it, it strikes me a little bit of wandering. Um, obviously, it's great that you've learned these, and it would be helpful to, to consumers. Does it seem interesting to you that somebody who deals with eyes would deal with skin tags? Well, these would only be skin tags in and around the eye, right? I so we're see. not we're not tackling a skin tag on your shoulder. Got it. We're looking for a skin tag that's you know right next to your eyelid. Maybe okay. it's getting inflamed. Maybe it's it's in the way or moving the lash line in some way. All right, caused problems. Here. Makes sense. It's, so it's really directly related to eye care. Everything we're asking for is is directly related to. To directly to the eyes. Okay. Eyes. Well, this is how we learn. There you go. <laughs> so, Vermont, um, how, how do we compare to other states in terms of the scope of practice in optometry? Sure. So, the the three buckets that we're kind of asking for, the lasers, the lumps and bumps, and the injections, these procedures are already approved in 11 states across the country, all of them. And some of those states have been doing it since the 90s. So time-wise, you know, there's decades of experience with optometrists performing these procedures. There's about 29 states that have part of it. A part of the the way a, a profession like optometry works is that each thing that we do has to be legislated. We have to go before the legislature every time and say, look, here's our experience, here's our education and training. It isn't just that you know how to do it. It's that the law says you can do it. And so every state runs that same gauntlet. Some states choose to say, look, here's the three things we want to be able to do for in-office procedures. Some say, well, Let's just ask for one and see how it goes. And so there's about 29 states that have part of what we're asking for. And this is training that is is more new? Like, would your grandfather have had any idea about this? No. My grandfather, um, my grandfather definitely was a huge advocate for optometry doing more than they could. But yeah. when he started, it was, it was what people often say to me today, which is glasses and contacts. Right. In fact, um, my grandfather fit some of the first contacts in Vermont. Um, my grandfather was a World War II medic, and, you know, so some of the things that were pushed around his time was like treating pink eye because when he was in, in the Pacific, that was something he could have done as a medic. But then he came out, he went to graduate school, he became a doctor, and he couldn't do it in the state of Vermont. Right? Um, so, you know, those were things that were advocated for. And about 20, 23 years ago, we had our last big change in scope practice. And that actually allowed optometrists to treat glaucoma. Um, and that we had similar opposition. People were worried that optometry didn't have the education and training. But... Um, it's it's something that we do every single day now. Don't even think about it. Yeah, so you have these skill sets. Uh, there's a bill, S-233. Um, is, there, is there a holdup on the bill? Or? Well, right now it's before the Senate Health Committee, and, and we've been working on trying to have a hearing taken up. It's, it's sort of unusual to uh, – if I back up a little bit – 
There was a hearing on this two years ago in the Senate Government Operations Committee. And the Senate Government Operations Committee took a lot of testimony from opponents and from advocates for our position. And when they got done, they wrote the Office of Professional Regulation. They said, look, we need you to, to – there had been a report written um, a few years prior that was not necessarily positive for optometry. They said, we need you to rewrite this report. We need you to look at the testimony that happened and work towards writing a positive report. And so they went back and they looked at everything. And when they've come back with their new reports, about three times as long as the original, they've come back with this language that is in S233. And they're recommending that optometry be allowed to perform these in-office procedures with, with some bumpers. They want to make sure that everybody goes back and does boards again um, for these specific procedures and has about 100 hours of proctored um, hands-on training as well as a, a minimum number of procedures performed during that 100 hours. You talked about the scope of uh, – you have these skill sets already, but you're not able to use them in optometry. Are there – um, advantages. Can you talk more about the advantages to the consumer and even if there are some uh, financial benefits to it as well? Yeah, so this is one of the, the discussion points that we've had with um, the Senate in the past and as well as the Office of Professional Regulation. We sort of see a couple of things. The first is if you go into the office and you see your optometrist and, and you need a procedure and we are referring you out, you have to take another day away from the radio, which is not great for your, your listeners. But you have to um, schedule that time. You have to meet with a brand-new provider, usually have an office visit where they kind of gather their own information and, and sort out what's going on, and then um, often go back for the procedure. If you, were, um, if you were in your optometrist's office and it was somebody who we had a long-standing um, care relationship with and you, you had watched the process, um, whatever it is, maybe a film on the back of your implant or a little skin tag or something. We, we probably do that the same day. Certainly, we, we would only need one more visit to do it. So you're saving um, time away from work, scheduled time, appointment time. Um, you're also saving um, whatever the financial dollars are around your visit with the additional provider. And the, the insurance companies are all on board for this type of treatment for the most part? I, I think with something like scope expansion, insurance companies sort of adjust to the laws of yeah. the state. I, I don't think they are opposed or, or not opposed. Um, one probably large thing is, particularly with the laser surgery to lower eye pressure, um, glaucoma drops that, that we prescribe are a monthly recurring cost, Right. If you do laser surgery, that laser surgery can last a couple of years. Um, that could be 24 months' worth of medication that you didn't have to buy. Um, and, it, and sometimes it lasts as long as a decade. depends on the patient. And it sounds like what one of the things you're saying is that you can actually get quicker service on something that you need. We feel that that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And uh, I want to just return to, you know, you had mentioned either on air or off air that maybe there are a 100 optometrists in Vermont. 
they will some of them are probably at different levels of, of you know i'm a perfect example of that my dad has no interest in doing this yeah he's happy to see his patients he wants to talk about bees and tropical fish and gardening <laughs> and and you know treat the things that he's been treating for years does he want to in the twilight of his career go back and take boards again and do a specialty endorsement he doesn't because he has kids he's gonna make us do it right right well that's that's how it works right uh i'll have to mention that to my daughter uh so but that said um, you can offer it, right? You can offer it in your in your practice, but maybe somebody in another county who is a little more um, aged in their in their practice, they don't have to. That's true. I mean, but that applies to medicine in every right. every aspect, right? There are you you could go and see an orthopedist who might say to you, you know, I just. I'd like to do hip surgery and not really knee surgery or, you know, we'd select the things that, that we do, that we have um, well-rounded training and that we're comfortable with. And I know where, where I go to the eye doctor, uh, they're very busy. It's always busy, busy, busy. They're great about getting me in. I always feel good about, you know, my annual appointment and I'm always asked if there's anything that goes wrong with your eye day or night, give us a call and, and we'll come and help you, which is really a tremendous service. That said, is this bill, does this help attract optometrists to Vermont uh, so yeah. that more people can, can? That That's another one of our big talking points, right? If, if you spent eight years, going through school. Maybe you did a residency after those eight years, so more than eight years, and you are looking around, assuming that your dad isn't an optometrist and you're coming home to work with him, but you're looking around and trying to decide what state you're going to. We're losing some young graduates who might otherwise move to Vermont. I mean, as a state, we have a lot to offer. Great ski slopes, rivers to tube down in the summer, hiking, and, and there are people who absolutely absolutely would love to do that. But, you know, some of them look at Kentucky, for example, and they say, well, Kentucky, I can do those things in Kentucky and maybe ride a horse. Um, do that in Vermont, too, of course. But um, graduates do look, and I teach. I mean, I know I have these conversations with students. There are a number of offices across the state of Vermont that I know are looking for students. Almost always talk to my students. Would you be willing to go talk with um, with one of the optometrists in Vermont about working here when you graduate. And this conversation comes up. Well, what can I do here? What? Yeah. Um, so what what do you hope happens here? What's your goal? Well, my, my goal here is probably twofold. The, the first is we'd really like the Senate to take this up. Um, the Senate asked um, a, uh, the Office of Professional Regulation to write a report there's a report there that they should hear in committee, and, and it should be discussed. And you, you don't usually ask people to do work and then ignore the work. And um, so we'd like the Senate to take this bill up in some form. Um, we're also just hoping that your listeners um, know that it's out there, that, uh, you know, there is some opposition. The opposition um, uh, uses sort of a lot of scare tactics. Um, two years ago, we had a lot of ads with, razor blades and do you really want 
you know, somebody using a, a scalpel on your eye. And the truth is there isn't anybody who wants anybody to use a scalpel anywhere near their eye, but sometimes it's necessary. Um, so, I, you know, I want your users to, to have some background with this, and ideally some of them um, are in close contact with their legislator, and they say, hey, I heard about this on the radio, and, and this is something I'm really interested in. The, the state of Vermont maintains actually a quite excellent website for figuring out who your legislator is and contacting them. So they would be um, contacting legislators and mentioning S-233 and... And saying, hey, I'd, I'd like this to be supported. I'd like my optometrist to be able to do this if they so chose. Um, we'd like to attract more talent to Vermont. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who thinks that health care um, is a short wait for anything right now. And this isn't going to solve all of that. But it can solve uh, at least part of it, uh, our little... Um, piece of the healthcare system. And we are uh, a rural state. Um, do we have um, under-serviced areas in Vermont that could use more optometrists? Yeah, I, um, I think if you talked or took a poll from optometrists, I think most optometrists feel we could certainly use more optometrists. Um, but generally speaking, outside of Chittenden County, uh, you know, there's, there's a much larger need. And um, you also mentioned, um, maybe off air, we were talking, you, this generational thing, you really know your, your patients, right? You, you've tracked them, you know everything about their eye development and, and, and that. And then if you have to do a referral out, of course you do if it's something that you can't handle, but if it is something you can handle, it, it just becomes a consumer benefit. It does, yeah. I mean, I, every single day when you have a patient who's in front of you and you're sending them for surgery, even if it's a surgery that I've never trained to do, the patient looks at you and says, well, you'll be doing this, right, Dr. Dean? And I say, no, this isn't one that I do. Um, and, and, but I can recommend somebody really good. You know, we have some great eye surgeons in Vermont. You know, ophthalmology is, is, you know, they do training to open the eye up and change a lens out or maybe repair a retina. We're not asking for any of those major surgeries. We're asking for sort of in-office procedures. Yeah. Do you want to do a shout-out to your uh, staff at all? They're, they seem to have to be on a big learning curve for technical things, too. I, hey, we love our staff. staff. <laughs> we could not survive without our staff. And, and like, you know, like every healthcare provider right now, we could always use more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're hearing that and getting them affordable housing and all of that stuff, right? right? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Dean Barcelow, optometrist here in Vermont, uh, there's a bill in at least a committee now, maybe just sitting on the wall, which they do sometimes, uh, S-233. One more plug uh, to... Uh, We'd ask that you contact your legislator, especially in Vermont. They're probably your next-door neighbor. Ask them to to talk about this bill. Ask them to take this up. Um, Let's have a committee hearing on it. Let's talk about the report. And if they'll see what you mean. That's right. (laughs) All right. Pun intended. Thank you so much, Dr. Dean Barslow, for being with me this morning. Very informative, and hope things go well for you. Hey, I really appreciate your time.